Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. You're seeing my Wordle uh, <laughs> result behind me rather than no what I'm spoilers. supposed to have. No spoilers. No spoilers. I, I don't think you can see that, but I'm going to let Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson take over while I clear that off the screen so that you guys, I'm now blocking it. I'm blocking your Wordle for the day now, here. Now, if you think I'm going to be the one to tell you what Wordle is, I'm not going to be the one to spoil what Wordle is today. Because I don't want to break my own karma here. Uh, I, I, of course, have already seen what the word is. I've already done my wordle for the day. So Ed didn't spoil it for me. I just merely watched over his shoulder and watched the back of Ed Morrissey's head think, which was actually kind of interesting to watch. <laughs> well, we just had come off the Hugh Hewitt show, and uh, we were talking about <clears throat> mostly what we were talking about um, uh, on uh, on the air, which is the war in Ukraine. Um Launched last night, and we discussed it in great detail on today's Hugh Hewitt Show. And, so, and it is indeed a war. It's not yeah. a minor incursion. Uh, we talked about this last night in the, on the uh, after show, and you were kind of skeptical, Ed. You were like, yeah, he doesn't have it. There, there's no logical reason why he's going to do this. And I said, you're kind of assuming he's a logical guy. You're assuming he's acting like a rational guy. And, you know, we kind of went back and forth on this a little bit, and, and you're, you're – attitude was he he's going to run into resistance here i mean this is he's going to pay a price for this he's going to pay a huge price he's still going to pay I, a huge price and, and and according to some of the some of you know who knows you know twitter is 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 a sea of all sorts of things information and misinformation disinformation but um according to a lot of things that you can see in video feeds that are that are being played out on twitter you know in in some instances, you're seeing helicopters that have been splashed down. You're seeing columns of tanks that have been uh, disabled. Um, now you're seeing plenty of Ukrainian things blow up too. I mean, right. obviously, it's it's. You were playing a lot of those clips during the <laughs> uh, for the universe, folks. By, right. by the way, you know, h u g h n i v e r s e dot com. We were talking last night on your show, on the after show. That you were talking about me being skeptical. I mean, I, I didn't think that. Um, I, I didn't think that it was a for sure thing that it wouldn't happen. But I mean, when I'm looking at the rational calculation of this, albeit from Western eyes, and you know, we talked to Josh Rogan today about that. And he said yes. that everybody's got their head up their butt about this. This isn't what Putin's game is at all. And that's the reason why sanctions won't matter. The only thing that's going to matter is giving him a bloody nose, which Ukraine might end up doing, actually. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at this from just a balance sheet perspective, this is a bad move for Putin. And I think that still is going to matter in the long run. Uh, I would, I would, I would absolutely agree with you, but um, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom and, and uh, it, it was, it was a fair, it was a fair prediction was um, that he was bluffing that he was going to go in and, and do a full invasion because um, the, the parts that he really wanted were the separatist parts in the in the in the east, right? You know, he right. wanted he wanted the nets and little hanks. The stuff he, the stuff that he could get on the cheap. I mean, he was not going to face an insurrection or you know, insurrection's the wrong word for for that. There, an insurgency in Luhansk and Donetsk because it's right. primarily ethnic Russians that live in those in, in those regions, and so right. that's on the cheap, just like and, it is in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Except in within about three hours of us uh, going off the air, this is pretty much what the what the what the bomb uh, uh, plot looked like. Right. I, 
I mean, he's it's not just a bombing over. plot, but I mean, you've got Missiles invasions and, coming. Yeah. If, yeah. Invasions coming from um, from the amphibious, north out of Belarus. Uh, and, and amphibious uh, assaults uh, through the port of Odessa. I mean, all all sorts of fun stuff. This is a full on. And this is this is war. I mean, this is active, uh, full on war right now. Um, so it's the largest scale war in Europe since 1945. This is and, bigger than the Balkans. And and this whole and this whole premise thing, right? This whole premise of, well, you know, you've got to understand the paranoia of of Russia and of Vladimir Putin, and um, you know, we, we we should have guaranteed him for thirty years. We should have guaranteed him for fifty years that Ukraine would have never uh, joined NATO. Which I don't know if they would have joined NATO one hundred percent or not. I don't, you know. It, it, it's, it's obviously been talked about for a while, but were they really going to sign that treaty? Were they really going to pony up 2%? Nobody knows that. That was not an imminent thing. And, 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 and the people that are trying to play into Vladimir Putin's justif justification for it or his perceived justification for it of, well, you can't blame them because, you know, who, who would want to, if you're Russia, who would want a NATO ally on, on your borders? Well, he already has NATO allies on his borders, Ed Morrissey. Right, right. And, he's got he's got the Baltic states for one. He's um, got the Baltic states for one, and if he were to take Ukraine, right? If he's successful and he basically absorbs and 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 swallows big fish like a little fish, and 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 absorbs uh, Ukraine, puts a puppet state in there, and 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 molds it into a Soviet bloc state. Guess what he has on his borders then? around right. around ukraine he's got a whole bunch of nato states not just nato states but mobilized nato states right now. so so where would it end if 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 he's worried about if if the premise is is russia can't stand a nato uh state on their border well okay so so you they go all the way to the atlantic now what what, what exactly does that mean um well it's it's a good question I suspect that he knows better than to to try to roll into the Baltic states because that is going to touch off uh, a full-blown European war that he right, can't he, win. He, he can't right, win it. He, he won't roll out of that. No. Um on uh, on Twitter today, you know, the, the president uh, apparently has woken up from his slumbers. Uh he's had him he's had himself a good sleep on what's been going on apparently according to uh the White House statement last night and and uh, after his little call with Zelensky. And apparently the White House is going to uh, roll out Joe Biden to address the nation today on what I think at is. noon Eastern time. Is that right? I think that's what we heard on the show. Noon Eastern. Be, so we're noon talking Eastern, right. what, two and a half hours. And you know, he's going to be late because on this, these kinds of things, he's always a little late on it, which is fine. Right. So he's, he's going to come out and he's going to give whatever address he's going to give on whatever sanctions he's going to do, which aren't going to do a damn thing. Because as you and I well know, any sanctions that Joe Biden can come up with, and I'm talking about actual sanctions that he's going to come up with, anything that would have been meaningful to do should have already been implemented and put into place long before now. They right. should have been. They should. They should have gone into place when Vladimir Putin refused to de-escalate and pull 200,000 troops off the border of Ukraine. Should have actually got, been in place before even before those troops even arrived. When they uh, when they started massing troops. Honestly, so it should have it should have been put in place in 2014 
when after Crimea, yes, after Crimea, I hundred percent agree with you. Hundred percent agree. Because this is not this is not a new thing. Although there's more going on, I think with Ukraine specifically than, uh, and I think that that speech that he gave, we, we talked about this with Dr. Michael Oren on the show about referring to Nazis. You know, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky is a Jew, so it's kind yeah, of we, we we have to denazify Ukraine. Now, but there, but there's a there's a historic thing here, and I think this is part of what is driving Putin on Ukraine specifically, which is that Western Ukrainians the ethnic Ukrainians, largely allied with Nazi Germany in World War II because they saw uh, Hitler as a liberator, at least initially. And uh, and it, it touched off, you know, the, it's because of the Holodomor that had taken place a few years earlier where Joseph Stalin had starved around, what, three and a half million Ukrainians to death, um, mostly in the West. And so the Ukrainians allied with Nazi Germany and they they formed their own uh, Nazi units. Now this is 80 years ago, right? And we're okay, talking, so, nobody's so, around that, that did that back then. But the Russians have long memories and they, they continue to see this as an insult. And that is what he's talking about. He wants a Ukraine that's run by Russians, which it had been, right? In the, in the post-Soviet period, most of the governments that were formed in Ukraine were formed by ethnic Russians. It wasn't until 2004, um, with the Orange Revolution, that ethnic Ukrainians actually took control of the of the government. Then they got pushed out, you know, with various corruption charges right. and stuff like that. Then they came back in 2014, and they had that election in 2014, which is what triggered the initial seizure of Crimea. And, Crimea. Yeah. So I mean, that's part of the context of this in Ukraine. That's part of what is driving this as well. But is that is that historical is right, that historical but, grudge? Okay, that's fine. It's a BS premise to start a war. Like no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not using this as an excuse. But what right. I'm saying is, this is the reason why Ukraine is a special. It, it may be a special case. It's not really because they did the same thing to Georgia, which didn't have any Nazi connections at all that I'm aware of. But but that's what this denazification thing is it's it's not about nazis it's about ethnic ukrainians he wants russians in charge of ukraine ethnic russians in charge of ukraine who are allied to moscow i'll, I'll, I'll give you i'll give you another uh state preview he wants russians in charge of moldova he wants russians in charge of hungary he want he it, yeah moldova's to... next moldova's next it's on the border with ukraine moldova's they, next course, yeah of course they are um it, <clears throat> in his heart of hearts i mean if in, in putin's heart of hearts he wants Russians in charge of Poland. Yeah, well, that's not happening, and he knows that's not happening. Well, I understand that, but but I mean, if if you actually if you actually look at what the, the the world that if you look at the map that that Vladimir Putin wants to see, right? Yep. It's yep. it's a, it's a, it's the Soviet Union bloc. Well, of course it is, and that's exactly what he's reassembling. So he's is what he's explicitly saying now is that he is rejecting the the, the post World War Two or post excuse me post um, Berlin Wall the post World, World order. War order right right that's exactly right. Um, so the question is is what is Joe Biden going to do about it? What 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 can Joe Biden actually <clears throat> tangibly do? to actually change the calculus. There's only yeah. one thing that Joe Biden can do, and he's never going to do it. You and I have discussed this. Well, I, I, and, and I, on Twitter, I came up with three things that can happen. Um, the bat phone is ringing. Yeah, it's, I, I, I know, I know 
it, and I can't take. He's going to call back in a minute too, but I can't. <laughs> I can't take it. Um, I just can't take it, man. Uh, I, I just can't take it. So there is, um, there are three things that can happen that Joe Biden can actually tangibly do that actually would impact geopolitics. Now, four technically, if you want to include Ukraine on this, there's there, there's a short term and three long term things. The short term thing. You can do a Berlin airlift uh, and drop every gun that you can stick on a plane and, and buckets of ammo and drop them on west, the western half of Ukraine right now. I mean, that's yeah. what you can do, right? Yep. So that's number one, that, that could be an immediate thing for Ukraine because they can't get, they, they can't get their hands on enough guns now that, that, they, that they really want to do. If it, if, it, if it can kill people, if you point it at them, Ukrainians pretty much want that right now. So that's number one. Number two, he should address the nation and Congress by way of the nation, and then he should follow it up again and renew it in a State of the Union next week, which right. he'll, he'll never do. But what he should do that can make a difference is say, okay, you know what? It's time to plus up. The world is a different place than it was. We're plussing up the military by a trillion dollars you know that build back better thing that i wanted screw that well it won't be by a trillion because that'd be that would be more than double the the current budget but i i think it's, it, it sure would wouldn't it well yeah but i mean it's the money's just not there but i think jim talent said maybe you know 12 to 13 percent five percent over the inflation rate which I, would put us around 12 to 13 percent. You, you, under, you understand what i'm calling for absolutely I'm, I'm, I'm calling for enough of a plus up of the of the of the military budget ships planes all of it i yep. mean it's it's time to ramp up and and deal with the world not that it is right this second but but the way the world is headed it's you arsenal to, of democracy time is what you're saying it's, it's arsenal, arsenal of democracy, of democracy it's lend lease time it's it's arsenal of democracy time it's 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 time to get ready for reality here and if you do that if you if if joe biden called for that what message does that send? I mean, I'm sure Putin would look at that and go, huh, well, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. But the one that would actually take note of that is Xi, right? Xi Jinping would see a plus up of that. And all of a sudden, you know, it might, might change his calculus a little bit. That's number one. Number two, I'm kind of in agreement with uh, uh, Jim Stavridis, who on Morning Joe this morning said, you know, we've got a 30,000 uh, member NATO special forces um, uh, troop, and we've got planes, tanks, uh, you know, sea, all, all the all the accoutrements that that you would have in a special reaction force. They should ring around where the conflict zone is at all the uh, NATO member states and draw a line, make a border and draw a line, and say this is where you die. Right, right, right. So that's 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 number two because that would actually send a signal to Putin that, okay, we're actually serious about this part of it. Number three, um, I think the, the, the other thing that Biden could do, if he really wants to make a difference in the world, is drop the climate change horse crap and start drilling. Start opening Absolutely. up American energy production, and I mean right damn now. The, All the of it. The more you drop the price of oil, the fewer dollars, rubles, kopecks, whatever you want to call them, flow into Vladimir Putin's coffers. They are a petrostate. They and, are. And the they are. They exist on oil. 
and the more influence that the U.S. has internationally on all sorts of things. If you are now a net energy exporter and people are relying on you for their energy, then you know what? That gives you some strings that you can pull. Right. Yes. It, absolutely. It, I, and it, this, is, this is not rocket science. I'm a dopey little radio producer. This is not hard to come up with. Now, Joe Biden will never come up with this. He will never say this. Well, he'll years. never do it. He'll never do it because he's too beholden to the progressive left, which will which never will eat agree. Eat him alive. They will, will eat him alive. Eat him alive. If eat him alive, if he uh, escalates uh, oil yep. production. We talked about this extensively on the Hugh Hewitt show. So again, yep. if you if you're a member of the universe, you can go back in and, and watch this. And I've talked about it. I've written about it extensively as well. I want to bring up something else though. Something that we didn't get a chance to cover on today's Hugh Hewitt show, which is a call from um, uh, Dimitro Kuleba, who is, I believe, the um, foreign uh, minister. He's foreign like minister. Secretary of State, right. He's, he's, a, he's a foreign minister. He's a Secretary of State uh, equivalent of Ukraine. There's a tweet that he sent out this morning is while we were just going into the third hour. Ukraine has severed diplomatic relations with Russia, which you already heard. I call on all our partners to do the same. By this concrete step, you will demonstrate that you stand by Ukraine and categorically reject the most blatant act of aggression in Europe since World War II. I'm now, with that. Now, I, I'm very sure that that's not going to happen. Of course not. I mean, you can see it in the fact that um, so, some European states don't even want to personally sanction Vladimir Putin. Not that it would make any difference anyway, but because they want to leave some room for for diplomacy, for for maneuvering to get him to withdraw. Um, I don't know. Lat Latvia was pretty harsh today. There, there are some member well, states that, that were pretty harsh. Well, that's because Latvia is on the front line. Germany is not, right? right. I mean, that's, I mean I, I'd say that the... I'd say that the danger facing Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and probably Finland too, although they're not a member of NATO, uh, is, yeah, is they might be shortly. They might be shortly has focused them in a very particular way on the nature of Vladimir Putin and the, the nature of Vladimir Putin's, uh, you know, project. As, I don't know, Boris Boris Johnson seemed to to. Um, well, I wasn't surprised by Boris Johnson being clear-eyed on this. I mean, right. I, I think if, uh, I don't know who's the current leader of um, of labor in in the UK, probably wouldn't have been quite as clear-eyed, although on foreign policy, they're not necessarily bad. Um, but Boris Johnson I would, and the Tories, I am not at all surprised right. that he's clear-eyed on this. And he actually had a very good speech. We talked about that on the show as well. But I don't see... I don't see the U.S. breaking off diplomatic, you know, expelling ambassadors. You know, let's not forget, though, that Russia uh, Russia expelled, expelled our deputy ambassador. Uh, was it a week ago or two weeks ago? Right. Over over espionage um, complaints. Um, I, I think that was a brushback pitch for this. Um, I don't think we reciprocated on that. We may have, but if we did, it was a little quieter. Uh, I don't know that we, uh, by reciprocating, I mean that we expelled one of their uh, diplomatic team as well. Normally, that's the response you'd have. If we haven't done that yet, we certainly should do it now. But okay, so I, I am not sure that breaking off, but booting ambassadors out of Western capitals at this point in time is necessarily the best response because, again, I don't think it's going to do anything. Um, I do think that you need to try to figure out ways to try to talk to other people and if you shut down your embassy, other people in Russia, if you shut down your embassies, you're giving up that opportunity altogether. 
Okay, so we're dealing with Joe Biden, and we've already discussed what he should do, but won't because of his political base. We know what he's probably going to say, which will have no meaningful impact. So let's 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 speculate on the on the happy medium ground, which is what could Joe Biden say that would at least not do any further harm? I'm not sure we're at a point where there's anything you can say that you, further harm is coming. Further see, harm that, is see, coming. That's, you see, that's exactly where I'm coming to. Right. If he opens up his pie hole today. It nothing's good's going to come out of it. Right? No, no, no. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think that there are things that he can say that will make make our position very clear. Uh, I think that the one thing he can say is that uh, because Putin sort of suggested this yesterday, that th- there might be attacks on, you know, Western infrastructure, cyber attacks on Western infrastructure. And I think that we should make it very clear that we will see that as an act of war and respond accordingly. Um, I think you have to make that very clear. You know, if he goes after the American do, power grid, for instance, um, do you have do you have any confidence at all that that Joe Biden would do that? No, no, I don't think he's even going to mention it. Right. Right. But so so that's doing harm. Well, it's it's doing harm by omission. Right. If he actually exactly. said something exactly. about it, it would actually be beneficial because it would set some bright lines. And then, you know, 100%. Putin might test that, but we would have to test. We'd have to we'd have to respond to it. But. I mean, honestly, an attack on American infrastructure, cyber attack on American infrastructure is an act of war. And it should get a response. Yes. That should be a very bright red line, shouldn't it? Yes. It it should be a very bright red line. um, And it should get a response. And And, and, and if said thing does happen, if we get a cyber attack and it's an act of war and we have to do some kind of response, either cyber or kinetic, does that trigger Xi to say you may begin to his generals to go into Taiwan? I think if we don't respond to that to a, to a direct attack on us, <laughs> yeah, why would we, if we're not going to respond to a direct attack on us? Why would we respond to an attack on Taiwan? Now there are other considerations for China on Taiwan, like a treaty, right? You know, we we we're we're, we're obligated by treaty to respond to Taiwan. Well, that 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 certainly for one, but also. Let's. Uh, the lines of communication are trickier for China and Taiwan than they are for Russia and, and Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's a much different kettle of fish for China. First off, Taiwan's armed to the teeth, and they're and they are a fully mechanized, fully modernized um, armed forces. There, that's not going to be a walkover. Um, they don't have a toehold on that island. They can't say, "Well, we can. We're gonna. Right. We're gonna." We're, Taiwan. We, tai, Taiwan never completely disarmed for the future promise that they'll never be invaded by the by the by, by the big gorilla power next to them right yeah you know and that's the other thing too we didn't get a chance to talk about this too much and it's been discussed anyway but you've had two countries that have uh conspicuously uh disarmed um in terms of nuclear proliferation, nuclear non-proliferation, cooperated with nuclear non-proliferation. You had Libya, which didn't have a nuclear weapon, but was developing them, who after the um, U.S. invaded Iraq, made a deal with the U.S. to um, to ship us his nuclear, you know, Qaddafi shipped us his nuclear um, work in exchange for leaving him alone. Never and, really worked out for either country or no. I was and I was going to bring the Budapest well, right? Budapest Agreement in 1994. Would Putin have invaded Ukraine 
if they had nuclear weapons? It's a good question. And there's going to be a lot of countries that are asking themselves that today. You see, I'm not thinking that I'm not thinking he would. But at the time, I think we didn't know that there would be a period of time where uh, where Ukraine would be fairly stable. Right. Well, I mean, that was the whole reason for 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 doing that, because we weren't convinced at all that they were actually going to be a functioning democracy. Uh, you know, I got to see if I can play this. Apparently, um, I don't know if this is today. Uh, John Kerry on Memory TV, former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry on oh, BBC Arabic. The Ukraine this- crisis could distract the world from the climate crisis while having massive emissions conflicts. And he said that he hopes that President Putin will help us with respect to what we need to do to stay on track with the climate this is from Steve, Stephen Hayes. Let me see if I can play this. Um, I'm not sure it will play through properly here. You can tell me. I won't be able to do a share screen, but let's see Let's see if we can play the audio at least on this. Um, and actually, this is muted. So give me just a second because, I mean, this is, um, if this is the way that Stephen Hayes says it is, this is just disgraceful. I'm very concerned about... You hearing this? concerned about no. Ukraine because of the people of... Ukraine and because of uh, no, principles not. that are at risk uh, in terms I of international law. Okay, and- I'm, I'm going to start this over because I think it's playing on here and I, I want to play it out. It's going to be about a minute long, Dwayne, and um, and I can't share it, unfortunately. Oh, I, oh I, I can I can see it here. I, I can I can hear it playing along. I've, okay. I've got it pulled up. All right. So let me go ahead and start this over again. This is John Kerry speaking to BBC Arabic. I'm very concerned about I'm concerned about Ukraine because of the people of Ukraine and because of the principles that are at risk uh, in terms of international law and trying to change boundaries of international law by force. Uh, I thought we lived in a world that had said no to that kind of activity. And I hope diplomacy will win. But massive uh, emissions consequences to the war. But equally importantly, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainly big country attention because they will be diverted and and uh, i think it could have a damaging impact so you know i think hopefully president putin would realize that in the northern part of his country they used to live on 66 percent of a nation that was over frozen land now it's thawing and his infrastructure is at risk and the people of russia are at risk and so i hope president putin will help us to stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. I, I'm telling I, I, you. I, I don't know. This guy used to be Secretary of State. He used to represent American interests abroad, right? For at least yes. for, for four years, right? He he succeeded yes. Hillary Clinton and the and the infamous reset button. Yes. As as Vladimir Putin is rolling over Ukraine, killing Ukrainians, he's over here saying, gee, I hope that President Putin remains a great partner for us on climate change. Um, This is absurd. This is this is absolutely absurd. This is the Democratic foreign policy establishment speaking right now. Again, I go back to what I said on Twitter, what Joe Biden really should do. Um, And and of course, he won't. But. The fact that John Kerry, when when Russia has just invaded a sovereign country and opened up war on the European continent, and he's more worried about climate change, I, I, you cannot be more unserious than John Kerry is. 
cannot possibly be more unserious. All right, Dwayne, we're coming up to the end of this here. I, I know we've talked all about um, Ukraine, but it's really that kind of a day. I mean, this is the first day of the war, and I think we really need, just needed to focus on this on today's podcast. But, uh, you know, I'm guest hosting tomorrow on the Hugh Hewitt Show, and of course, you've got your after show tonight. Why don't you tell us a little bit about... Um, about what's coming up on tomorrow, what we're going to be doing tomorrow. <laughs> you can tell me what I'm doing tomorrow on the Hugh Hewitt show well, and uh, what um, you're doing on the after show. Well, on, on the after show tonight, John Campbell, former Congressman uh, extraordinaire is going to be on with me. In fact, he'll be in, in town. He'll be in studio. Uh, I'm sure we're going to react to whatever Putin's address is today. And, um, you know, we'll see if it has a deterrent effect. We'll see if, if, uh, if, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin turns off the spigots. I'm sure we're going to be getting more telemetry by the time we get to tonight as to what's actually what damage has been done. If, you know, is, is Russia winning this thing in a route or is there, uh, is there news from uh, Ukraine that uh, they're actually fighting back and, and Russia is, is suffering casualties. I mean, we're going to, we're going to know a lot more than we know right now. And so we'll cover a lot of that. Um, and and the way forward here, and um, you can't really get in too much in front of a of a news cycle like this. You have to just kind of do play by play and react, right? Right, right. And, and I think that's what we're going to be doing tomorrow too. We did that all day, all all morning this morning, and honestly, that was it was the only thing we could do. And I suspect we're going to be doing the exact same thing tomorrow. We do have some guests lined up for tomorrow, but. Um, I can't imagine that John Kerry is going to be popular even with, you know, a handful of people. Oil is over, is at $100 a barrel, right? The futures this morning, oil. I think 105, I think, uh, I think the last, the last mark on that was 105. Because, I mean, they're, they're at active trading now, right? Uh, I don't right. remember when the, okay, so, so we were at the futures this morning on the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's now active trading. Um, as of when we taped this, it's at, it's at about $105 a barrel. It hasn't been at $105 a barrel since Whistler was a pup, right? Yeah, actually, um, uh, actually, overall oil is 98. Um, I was I was going up, but Brent uh, Brent crude, which is right. usually the marker, is right. uh, $103.93. So okay. yeah. So if this thing keeps <clears throat> going, and we jumped up 110, $115, $120 a barrel, if this thing goes protracted for another three, four weeks, another month, month and a half or something, and it goes sideways and, and oil gets up that high and the market tanks another 2,000, 3,000 points. And people are now paying what? Uh, in, in California, they'd be paying seven, eight bucks a gallon for gas. Yep. Um, middle of the country, they'd be well over five. They'd be, you know, five, six bucks a gallon for gas, middle of the country. Yep. Uh, how how re how receptive to the whole climate change -y argument do you think people would be at that point? Uh, very unreceptive. I think they're already unreceptive to this. I mean, if you take yeah. a look at the polling on just on the basis of inflation, I think that uh, people are looking for uh, a little bit more um, stability, let's say. Especially coming from a guy who's flying around his own freaking private plane. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is nonsense. Uh, so what's coming up on tonight's after show? You're going to be basically doing... John Campbell. John, oh, John Campbell. Campbell. That's right. Yeah. John Campbell. You John mentioned Campbell it. John Campbell. And, and uh, we'll cover all the news. You and I will do our thing in the morning on Hugh's show. And, um, you know, God be with the Ukrainians. Um, Absolutely. Because uh, apparently NATO isn't yet um, and, and, and won't be. But Boy, oh boy, do they need some help. They need uh, a lot of weaponry and they need a lot of uh, 
a lot of resources. Hopefully there will be some countries that, that uh, fly some extra, extra gear in. Um, indeed, indeed. All right, Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson, Master of the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. I will see you tomorrow morning because I'll be doing the Hugh Hewitt show tomorrow morning, and so we will talk to you then. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, guys. All right, stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Uh, joining me today uh, is Sarah Stong Stogner. She's been called the Lady Godiva of the oil field. She's also uh, the legal unicorn, and she is running for the Texas Railroad Commission, which is uh, a very interesting, uh, a very interesting position here in Texas and might even have some national impact. And so we're gonna delve deeply into some controversy and as well as into this race itself and the office that Sarah wants to seek. Sarah, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to be talking with you. And uh, I, we, we spoke briefly the other day to set the interview up and uh, I've been looking forward to discussing this with you. But let's start with the Lady Godiva of the oil field because you know, our, our, our um, our contributor Karen Townsend wrote about this, and this was a you know it was fairly controversial. Um, well, maybe a tempest in a teapot, really, in Texas. But um, you lost a you lost a, a media endorsement over an ad that you ran that showed you in um, and it, it sort of semi nude, I think, was the uh, was the description of this on an oil boom as uh, in a TikTok video, and I, I'm not even sure that was actually initially done for the campaign or if it was just that you just um, uh, added it for the campaign. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the about the video first. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm, I am running for railroad commissioner and I'm not accepting any campaign contributions. Right. Part of my platform is that it has become a captive agency of the oil and gas industry and it's pay to play. So we are in the process of filming a documentary following the struggles on the ranch where I live and the groundwater contamination and all these issues that inspired me to run in the first place. And the camera crew was out there in November at the ranch and we had a pretty day and we were driving around and one of the videographers said, you know, he's from Colorado and he says, you know, I've always wanted to, like, I, I see these uh, old images of people riding pump jacks with their cowboy hats and I've just always wanted to film or video or, or record or photograph someone on a pump jack and I being silly and from lived in New Orleans for far too many years was like, why don't we put some pasties on and get on top? <laughs> and so, you know, what started out just kind of as a joke, uh, we got the footage back and I was like, wow, I look pretty good. And so thought originally for my campaign announcement, right in December, when I really decided to run like, oh, maybe I could use this as my campaign announcement. And then I thought better of it because it's a primary, because I do need to appeal to traditional primary voters um, that probably as an announcement video, it wasn't a very good idea. So put, kind of put it on the back burner and wasn't worried about it. And then after we, um, after we got this in January, we had this geyser erupt on a ranch, a neighboring ranch that was the visual and I saw how that was getting more traction. And I just realized, look, we are in a world of clickbait and social media. And if you can't get someone's attention 
and you know the first two seconds of them watching something you're they're gone and i've got a, a huge step texas is a huge state geographically i have no money to run with and i thought you know it's super bowl sunday valentine's day is tomorrow early voting starts tomorrow i'm going to turn this into a tongue-in-cheek ad to just get some attention so that i can say okay great i've got your attention now let's actually talk about the issues well, it seems to have worked at least with uh, at least with us because we're we're going to talk about the issues um, in, in just a second. I do want to ask you about uh, the endorsement that was withdrawn, um, and I I believe it was uh, a San Antonio newspaper where this took place. Karen's got this at of course at Hot Air, uh, and I'm going to make sure that people reference back to Karen's post at the end of this. Uh, were you surprised that um, that you got that type of uh, sort of reversal from a media outlet that had endorsed you um, and not because you had made any sort of policy changes on your on your campaign. So I wasn't surprised that there was pushback, right? I mean, I expect, I get it. It's jarring. It's probably the first time in history that a serious candidate has, you know, posed semi-nude for something to get attention. Um, what I was disappointed with was the knee-jerk reaction. So before they gave us the endorsement, they had interviewed each of the three challengers for about an hour over a Zoom call and you know asked great questions and really got into depth. And then they reached out to me via Facebook Messenger, which I, I'm not real good about checking my Facebook Messenger. So I didn't see it for a little bit. And at first they said, have you been hacked? And I said, no, I haven't been hacked. That was me. I, I did this. I, pub I posted that publicly. And then it was this condescending, like, daddy's mad at you, and I've been a bad girl kind of thing. And I just thought, wow, the misogyny here is just dripping. And so I said, look, I'm sorry. Uh, I'd really like the chance to explain, you know, why I did it and kind of my rationale for it before you withdraw the endorsement. And they didn't give me a chance to do that. They just went ahead and did it. And so, and part of it in their withdrawal article, they said, well, you know, we did our research on her and, and if she'd had anything like this, we never would have endorsed her. And I thought, well, obviously they didn't check my social media that carefully. I mean, there's a picture of me that I posted my birthday, June 22nd last year, of me butt naked in the sand hills, saying like, guys, we've got to rethink what we're doing. Like, you know, let's go out there, naked truth kind of thing. So I, I don't know, I think it's a bit disingenuous. And I think it's misogynistic and it just plays into if women aren't being objectified and sexualized for men's pleasure, if when we take control of it, somehow we're in the wrong. Uh, to follow up on that, Sarah, and I, I, this is really going to be the, the last because I do want to get into the issues and why they endorse you in the first place. Um, have you gotten any pushback from feminists about this? Because I, I would imagine that you might have heard from from people who felt that you had you had done some damage in that direction. Yeah, there have been a few women that are in the oil and gas industry specifically that have said, you know, look, this sets us back. And I said, I understand. I mean, most most everyone has been overwhelmingly supportive, right? This is a very small but loud minority that's angry about this. Even my very Baptist mother hasn't come yelling at me, right? So I think that... Uh, I understand that that sentiment, but what I've tried to explain to them is, look, this isn't, you know, this is just taking something and twisting it on its head and calling attention to it. And I hope 
at the end of the day, we're, we're going to further women's rights and further the feminist movement. You know, that, that tends to be a bad word. But in my mind, what a feminist is, is letting women choose how they want to present themselves to the world and being judged for their substance, not for how they present themselves. And so at the end of the day, I think it's kind of hypocritical for feminists to say that I'm not allowed to do this. Like, that's the epitome of feminism. Well, Sarah, and, and, I, and I want to get back now to why that newspaper endorsed you in the first place. What were what were the positions that they cited about or 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 your or your background that they cited, which led them to endorse you in this primary race against uh, Wayne Christian and um, and tell us a little bit about why those matter in this race. Yes. So the railroad, first of all, the Railroad Commission of Texas has jurisdiction over three things. They have jurisdiction over oil and gas operations, intrastate pipelines, and um, uh, surface mining. And so it's very limited. It has nothing to do with railroads anymore. It was created in the 1800s. It hasn't had any jurisdiction since 2005 over railroads. And so... um, I am an oil and gas lawyer. I've represented operators, service companies, midstream companies in mostly risk allocation. So contracts between entities, the oil and gas industry has some very unique, nuanced contracting protocols, for for lack of a better term, kind of industry standard for how they allocate risk. And then suing insurance companies for catastrophic events in the oil field. So a well blows out you know, $100 million is at stake and people fight about it. So I'm well control certified. I'm, I've got all my safety training, right? I understand the operational realities of exploring for producing, transporting and refining hydrocarbons that powers modern day society. And I live, I live in West Texas. I have pump jacks in my backyard as seen from the TikTok video, right? Right. I I am kind of uniquely situated. I have the legal experience and the operational experience to really be an effective leader and to help get the bureaucrats out of the way because we have serious challenges impacting this industry. I mean, we, we had people die last year because of the freeze because we didn't have the natural gas infrastructure to make sure that our, our natural gas power plants were sufficiently supplied with natural gas to keep the lights on. We've got earthquakes happening because of our water management issues, 15 to 20 million barrels a day of produced water that we've got to figure out. Flaring, Wayne Christian, the incumbent, claims that we're down to 0.23% of all natural gas produced is, is flared and that it's a great reduction. It's it's BS, right? Like that's not what's happening. And we need somebody within the industry to step up. I mean, those of us in the industry, nobody wants to take a pay cut and move to Austin. That's not our jam, right? right. But I've got this calling and it's like, I, I firmly believe that if we don't clean house internally and hold each other accountable so that the good operators can continue to do their job, we're going to continue to be under attack by the left, by people who don't understand operational realities. And I think they heard that and we're like, yeah, she's the best woman for the job. So Sarah, getting to the point of last year's, um, energy disaster, which I think is a, a pretty good way of, of putting this. People, you know, A lot of people died um, as a result of the loss of power in Texas. Now, this was actually a few months before we moved here. Uh, we moved here in July of last year, uh, but certainly we followed the story from where we were living at the time because we'd been planning to move to Texas for some time prior to that. Uh, what has 
what have you seen in the intervening time? This we're talking about about a year now. What have you seen in the past year uh, that the Railroad Commission has done to improve that situation? And what more needs to be done? What What do Texans not know about that situation? Yeah, so first, we need mechanical integrity of the well bores, the pipelines, the gas compressor stations. So we've got aging infrastructure and assets across the oil field that haven't been properly maintained. You can't winterize something, right? It's like a house with no windows, right? right. How do you winterize a house with no windows? Well, we're kind of doing the same thing with oil and gas assets, but at the same time, We've got, we need to finalize the rules of what winterization are we actually gonna require at different facilities. And then we need enforcement of that. And right now, the Railroad Commission never finalizes rules. I mean, for example, there's, this is mind boggling, but we still do not have in the state of Texas, a rule for what is a reportable quantity when you spill produced water. Produced water is the water that comes with the oil and gas, right? Right, right. And so there's some draft rules that were published, I think, in the late 1990s. So we're 25 years later, and there's still no final rule for whether or not it's 250 barrels when you're in West Texas or 25 barrels in East Texas. There's some suggestions, but there's no final rules. And so we need, we need predictable rules that are fair and effective to be applied regardless of who you are and how much you make in campaign contributions. Well, and that's the biggest issue. Sarah, is that a, I mean, you, you talk on your website, and I should mention the website uh, URL, Sarah, the number four, rrc.com, Sarah for rrc.com is the website. Um, you talk about crony capitalism. I mean, is the reason why these rules aren't getting finalized because of uh, the influence of the oil and natural gas industry? Is this because, you or is it because just the people who are getting elected to the railroad commission are just sort of um not not particularly oriented towards um regulation in the first place i mean what what is the story on that yeah i don't know i i, I can guess when 70 percent of your campaign contributions come from the industry you regulate can you imagine what the sec rules would look like if wall street was electing the sec well, that's a good point. <laughs> Actually, that's a pretty good analogy. Um, they they kind of do indirectly, I would argue. But yes, uh, I mean, your your point is well taken here. And and I think I'm I'm a little surprised that this hasn't moved forward at least a little bit more in the wake of the uh, of the winter storm last year. And of course, we're experiencing some cold weather this year, but it hasn't been nearly as dramatic. And so the system has been holding up rather well. Um, is that because of is that well a is it just because it hasn't gotten as cold or or b or have there been at least some incremental improvements made that are keeping things in place until better regulation and better better enforcement comes along yeah what what i'm hearing is that there hasn't been significant winterization efforts that actually at the last you know we had 36 hours of sub-zero weather and that there was some significant interruptions. I think what we have gotten better at is on the ERCOT side, and you know, which the Railroad Commission has no jurisdiction over, right. is the designating of critical infrastructure. So the Railroad Commission asks operators, please tell us what you believe is critical so that we can report it to ERCOT, and then ERCOT makes sure that the next winter storm, we don't shut down power 
to the gas processing facilities, to the saltwater disposal wells, because if you can't get rid of the water, you can't produce the gas, right? There's a whole chain of events and no one had the foresight ahead of time to say, hey, if we get really, really, we get a really crazy polar vortex down here like we did in 13, like we did in 2021, right? That these events are going to, uh, we need to be prepared to make difficult decisions of where is power gonna go and what's the timing of that. And so I do think that that, has, that aspect has been maybe slightly tweaked because from a planning perspective, they now know, well, we can look and see what failed to make sure that those same uh, facilities the next time. But as far as making sure that the pipelines and the processing facilities that the Railroad Commission actually has jurisdiction over are getting winterized, I haven't heard anything good. Sarah, what is your position on uh, exploration and extraction? I mean, you talk a little bit about the need to uh, have regulation of the oil and natural gas industry, what they're doing out there as an attorney, you've seen some of the effects of, of this. And I'm, I'm curious as to where you think that needs to go. This is, and, and the reason why I bring this up is this is a national interest. Now it's an international interest because um, oil and natural gas is going to play a very large part in foreign policy, or at least it should be playing a very large part in foreign policy in American production uh, could be uh, some pretty good leverage there. So I'm curious as to what your orientation is on expanding uh, exploration and extraction and how to do it, um, if you support it, but how to do it more more safely and more reliably. Yeah, so I think, like, let's, let's take a brief history flashback, right? I mean, sure. 20 years ago, we were worried about peak oil. And over the past five years, 10 years, the Permian, it's really clear, we have enough oil and gas in the Permian alone to power America for the next hundred years. I yeah. mean, we are, and we get better and better at, at responsibly and efficiently exploring for and producing those hydrocarbons. So I think, but we still have this old mindset of, it may not be enough and we've got to go drill. And instead, what I would like to encourage people to think about is, okay guys, for a hundred years, we've been so obsessed with how are we going to get it out of the ground? We've gotten really good at figuring out how we're going to get it out of the ground. That's not a, that's not a concern anymore. Now what we need to be thinking about is how, every time we put a new hole in the earth, that hole is there forever. And casing, you know, the steel and the cement, how we actually complete these wells is not a forever solution. And so those things degrade over time. And we're dealing with these legacy assets, these orphaned wells, right? It's a big deal. And so I think we really need to sit down and think before we go and start punching holes in the ground. And hey, that's a different, that is something that I have changed my view on in the past year. If you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said we can drill responsibly in Alaska wildlife. Like we can, you know, we we should be going where it is easiest and cheapest, and we should be increasing production in those places from a competitive standpoint internationally, like you mentioned, right? Right. With the Ukraine and Russia. I mean, but we shouldn't be we shouldn't be shutting down the A and R Trans Canada pipeline. We shouldn't be. And, and instead, we've got Joe Biden who's asking OPEC to increase production. Like that is asinine to me. So, but at the same time, we've got to make sure that when we do drill a new hole in the ground, 
that we do it responsibly and that we're protecting our groundwater. And so I, I think that we need to be having these big picture conversations and thinking, okay, 30 and 50 years from now with all these new long, you know, two, three mile lateral horizontal drills, those are gonna have to be decommissioned. How are we gonna make sure that that doesn't get into our groundwater? And everyone's been obsessed about climate change and climate change is real, but I have, again, so much faith in our engineers that we're gonna get really good at carbon capture, right? I mean, they're coming up with really cool things with kelp and sequestering it and putting it in the bottom of the ocean and all kinds of stuff that I have every confidence we'll be able to figure that part out. But once we, once we destroy our groundwater, we can't get it back. And so I think we've kind of lost sight of the forest for the trees and like, guys, where are we going? And instead of talking in four 10 year cycles that are politically motivated, let's talk about a hundred, a thousand years. What's the future gonna look like? And maybe every house needs a couple solar panels and a wind turbine because you're losing, right? Half of that through transmission. And we don't have the rare earths, to be, rare earth minerals to be able to create the batteries to store that. Like there is no such thing as clean energy. Everything has costs. Right. And, and we've got to look at what's the, what's the most efficient use of resources and where, and let's make policy decisions based on common sense and long-term viability, not, you know, knee-jerk reactions to propaganda. Sarah, we've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to give you a chance to um, differentiate yourself from your primary opponents here in, in terms of why Texans really should be casting their ballot for uh, Sarah Stockner for uh, Railroad Commission. Yeah, look, um, I know this is weird, but Tom Slocum and I started a nonprofit together a couple of years ago to help plug Dorfman Wells. He's a good guy. Uh, if, if I'm not your cup of tea, look at him. He's more traditional conservative values, right? Uh, he's out there. Look at Dwayne Tipton, who I've gotten to know on the campaign trail. Super nice guy. Very. Both of those guys are competent and qualified. It's anybody but Wayne. So if I am, I'm. Yes, I would love your vote, but if I'm not your cup of tea, please research Tom Slocum. Please research Dwayne Tipton, and let's get the. 70-something-year-old financial planner, Grammy award-winning gospel singer who takes $100,000 payments after approving toxic waste pits in contravention to the recommendation of his staff, out. Like, that is the problem with politics, and it really is anybody but Wayne. Well, I got to say, I think that uh, you might be a unicorn, after all, Sarah Stockner, because I, I am, I, I, as, as somebody who thinks that politics can be a... Um, a, a uh, honorable uh, uh, honorable pursuit. Um, I have rarely heard anybody say that many nice things about the people that he or she is running against. <laughs> so, I mean, kudos to you for that. And uh, and really, thank you very much for, um, for coming on here, talking about the controversy, but more importantly, talking about the energy issues that face Texans and that face, uh, face Americans as, as an extension. Uh, Sarah Stockner, of course, uh, Sarah, 4RRC.com. That's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, the number 4RRC.com. That's where you find her um, her campaign website. And Sarah, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. When we come back, we'll have more from the Ed Morrissey Show, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me right now is a man who could actually do the Welcome Back to the Ed Morrissey Show. He's been on here often enough to where he does actually a really good uh, impersonation. A.J. Kaufman of Alpha News, alphanews.org, <laughs> joins me to talk about, well, a couple of different things. Uh, Democrats, um, Democrats in trouble in the midterms, as well as what's happening in Ukraine. A.J., welcome back. I am glad to be back, Ed. It's been too long, but you know what? We're here now. Uh, we are here now, and um, and uh, you know at least we can say that Joe Biden was here now. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Democrats are here now, but they don't seem to be doing much with it. Um, you wrote a commentary this week. Uh, said, uh, "Will Democrats finally acknowledge that they're failing Americans, even when their own party acknowledges the need for changes? Team Biden does not replace failing team members, nor take crime, inflation, or the border seriously." I, I want to start off with what I think is actually a really interesting key to your argument here. Why aren't, why haven't there been personnel changes made? I mean, this is an administration that is just falling through the floor and the, 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 it's a political axiom, I would almost argue, that presidents hire people so that they can fire them when things get bad and, and, and get a chance for a reset. And yet nobody's moved, nobody's changed. They haven't done anything. Right. I think even Barack Obama made some changes. Certainly Donald Trump did and George Bush did. Um, I don't know. You could argue the hard left is still controlling um, the administration. I don't know that I'd characterize all the people in the in the cabinet, though, as hard left. Uh, some, yes, but not not all of them. Certainly not the national security team. If they were hard left, they'd be out with Bernie and, you know, they'd be ignoring what's going on in the world, I suppose. Right. But uh, yeah, it's 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 bizarre. I heard someone the other day, it may have even been this morning, say that he should immediately replace you know his his some of his team members with the likes of leon panetta and chris coons and some of these more i wouldn't say hawkish but just people that are more in tune with the moderate wing of the party and have a little more foreign policy chops but no it's been a year and a month and um not a good year and a month by any even the most diehard biden supporter wouldn't say it's been a good year and not one change and gosh alejandro mayorkas would have been the first one that should have gone um, even though we're not focusing on the border here, administration certainly doesn't. Um, and there are certainly others, you know, going back to Afghanistan, not to mention Granholm and Energy um, and Becerra, who I thought was going to be gone about a month ago. Me too. He, he's kind of invisible in the middle of COVID, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, the COVID thing has just been such a disaster and it would have been so easy to replace him because he never should have gotten that job in the first place. I mean, he I think everybody's everybody has kind of acknowledged that. This is a guy who wasn't really qualified for that position. He was qualified to sue people, but he's not—he's he's not a healthcare professional. Attorney and general. He's, right. Yeah, he's maybe an attorney general candidate. Exactly. Um, so the that—that's easy, right? Uh, Anthony Blinken or somebody at the at the Pentagon after the Afghanistan debacle. I mean, Joe Biden was saying nobody told me this was going to happen. Nobody told me this was going to happen, and yet all the same people who were in, advising him through this thing. Are still in place. Mark Milley's still there. Lloyd Austin's still there. You haven't seen, you know, the army did an investigative report that assigned blame and and, uh, and and said that these people were talking to the White House. And Joe Biden's response to this was, well, I reject that. And it's business that's as usual. Yeah, that's what he does. I, I called for Milley and Austin to be fired at some point when I was uh, back in the summer, I, you know, it's, I didn't think it was going to happen, but I do think a better president might have held someone accountable. You mentioned Blinken, you mentioned Sullivan. 
Um, election results also. I mean, San Francisco School Board, Virginia, even New Jersey being so close when no one thought it would be close. Um, I don't know what, there's nothing more to really say. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. But at this point, they're they're not. And it's every it's every area. I mean, you, Janet Yellen, frankly, should be on the chopping block, so to speak. I mean, she denied inflation for a year as we all saw grocery bills and gas prices soar. Um, not to mention they're not part of the cabinet, but I can't believe Anthony Fauci and Rochelle Walensky are still on the air so often. I mean, if anything, even if you love them, I think as the face of COVID, they probably should take a slightly more reserved role and not be on 18 different Sunday shows. Well, right. I mean, if nothing else, at least change your, t- your talking heads, right? At least change your proxies. I think a better, better term is proxies. Yes. Uh, you know, Anthony Fauci is what, 79 years old? 81. Is he really 81? So he's 81. He's been around for 40 years there. This is a guy who already had credibility issues prior to this pandemic because of his um, management of the AIDS epidemic back in yeah. the 80s. No one thinks about that, but you're right. Yep. Uh, this is a guy who has, has told the noble lie on more than one occasion in order to manipulate people. And then it came out and admitted it. Well, you know, it's uh, we we didn't want people buying masks because we didn't have enough masks around. Well, yeah, okay, great. So then when you have to fall on that sword, you actually fall on the sword career-wise. You, you submit your resignation and allow people to replace you. Um, and I understand why he might not want to have done that with... Donald Trump, because he and Donald Trump butted heads. But I mean, why not with Biden? Why not allow Biden to pick somebody else who can who can actually address these issues? Well, there's pride involved, but he certainly has a nice pension coming his way. So it's not like he's going to struggle for money. And frankly, when you're well, you got a lot of 80 year olds, you got Nancy Pelosi, you got Anthony Fauci, you've got Bernie Sanders, you've got Joe Biden in a few months. I mean, this is this oh, you is, got Chuck Grassley, you've got Mitch McConnell, you've got I mean, got, right. Although Grassley can still do 50 push-ups, so I actually, you know. Well, that's more 49 more than I can. Right, exactly. So <laughs> you wouldn't, you know, Grassley's an impressive guy, I'm, I, but he will be well over 90 by the end of his term if he wins re-election. I, I think he will. This fall. Right. Yeah, it'd be 94 by the time he, by the wow. time he finishes yeah. up. So, uh, you know, it, it's not even about that so much. It's just it's the same old faces when there's no credibility. Joe Biden is elected to that position. But he has the ability to change the faces around him if for no other reason than to gain himself a little breathing space, politically speaking. I, and I don't I don't know. I don't know what Ed, I, I don't well, I think know. it's denial, isn't it? I mean, right. It's denial. They don't take responsibility. They blame their their messaging, which is really like blaming you and me. Um, it's the typical liberal idea of they have noble intentions. And what's interesting, though, is that as you wrote today, they're losing Hispanic voters from the Emerson poll. They're um, rural America. My God, I mean, they're 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 not just losing voters in rural America. They've been ostracized completely from rural America. They have no. I mean, I would be surprised if outside of a few, you know, hanging on union members and a few people that have moved out there from they must be 15 percent Democrats in rural America in most states these days. And that matters that they may be smaller populations, but that adds up. And, and we'll see that hopefully in uh, the House races, but more so in the Senate races come fall that rural America um, is going to continue to turn out and, and vote against Democrats, I believe, especially in the Midwest and South. Well, I, I think this gets to the to I, I, the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up is because I think it provides context for your argument, which is that Democrats aren't accepting responsibility for failures. They're not even acknowledging failures. And 
you you address this in your post. I've addressed this a, a few times already in in my posts. Is that they continue to argue that this is a message that they're that all of the, these issues are messaging problems. Well, it's a messaging problem. Well, we're just not telling the story. We're, we're you know we're, we're you know people just don't understand all the great things we're doing for them, which is just patently false. This is not a messaging problem. This is a performance issue. And, uh, and and they don't Obama, want to acknowledge it. I think it. Obama did it too. Obama did it too. It's it's usually it's, it's you don't understand how good you have it under us. And with Biden being an old white guy, they can't really play the race card. But if they wanted to, when it comes to criticizing the vice president and others, then it's sexism and racism, which is another def way to deflect and you know end end the discussion pretty much. But as far as messaging goes, yeah, it's not messaging. I mean, people who like Biden's administration, they like it thirty five percent, whatever it is. And then he's losing all those independents who may have supported him in 2020, who are now, um, I assume, either sitting out or supporting Republicans. Right, right. I mean, this is again, this is um, this is sort of this denial that that you see going on here. And, and, and what the Washington Post actually uh, covered a uh, an analysis. There's been several analyses, by the way, about where Democrats are going this this midterm. I mean, you can listen to James Carville, who's been pretty, you know, outspoken on this issue. Um, uh, there's a Obama polling firm. I think it's called Benedict's Internet, Benedict's and Amica International. I think, or is it, I, I believe it's something to that effect. Um, and then you have this new. I guess you could call it an autopsy. They're not dead yet, but I mean, <laughs> it's well, it's always it's always called an autopsy, you know, right. whatever. A well, reflecting study. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, from William Galston and Elaine Kamark, and talking about the fact that at the root of this problem is that Democrats have bought into a mythology of an emerging progressive majority that simply right. doesn't exist. And what makes this notable is that William Galston and Elaine Kamark wrote an autopsy of the 1988 cycle which largely came to the same conclusions and which led the Democratic Party to uh, to form the Democratic Leadership Council, which produced Bill Clinton as one of the you know one of their centrist stars and who went on to win the presidential election, I think three years after the report came out because it came out in 89. Right. Um, and here you've got him coming back around and saying uh, it's the same problem, only worse this time. And I mean, it's it's this is recent. So, I mean, I'm not expecting you know, the White House to simply fire everybody in the wake of this and, and, and hire a bunch of people from, I don't even know what the center, what a center left think tank would be, maybe Brookings Institution, which is where Galston is at. I think Camark's there too. Um, but I mean, I, I think that there's a, there was a recognition after the 1988 election that, that there was something seriously wrong with the direction that the D Democratic Party is taking. I, I mean, even after the shellacking they took in Virginia and nearly losing the gubernatorial election in New Jersey, of all places, uh, last November, this party doesn't think anything's wrong. And they don't have any Southern Democrats to go to like they did with Gore and Clinton. True. Um, the only there were there were no Southern Democratic senators until the Georgia race. But Raphael Warnock is is a radical crazy. And John Ossoff is, is hardly Southern. I mean, yeah, he's from Atlanta, but he which right. went, went well in Los Angeles or New York just as much. So they have nobody left there. And this, what's different now, I think, in 89, I was young, um, so I wasn't following it as closely. But the sanctimony they have, I believe, toward people who don't agree with them, toward, frankly, rural America, 
toward white conservatives, toward Christians, what have you, toward Orthodox Jews, and even toward Asian Americans, as we saw in San Francisco, is that, you know, it's just, it's condescension, and you're not smart enough to understand what's going on. And on the other hand, 30, 31, 30 U.S. House retirements, uh, that says something. And I didn't see your study you mentioned, but you, the, the term you said, um, what would, you said that the conclusion was, remind me that line you said, that the Democrats are not understanding something about the voter. You had a good line you took from it just now. Uh, they're, they're not understanding the... Um... Well, for one thing, they're, oh, they're progressive majority is emerged. Is it, right. The progr- yeah, it's, it's a myth. There's a myth, there's a mythology of a progressive majority that simply doesn't exist. And that oh, the does, elections last last November really demonstrated that. And, and related to that, they yeah. they believe that all people of color, if you will, think and act the same way. In fact, that's something that they explicitly talk about. That right. Galston and, and Cam are explicitly and, all Hispanics, and even more, more nuanced, all Hispanics think and act the same way when Mexican Americans in California do not think and act the same way as Cubans and Colombians and Venezuelans in Florida. Or even um, even Texas, even Mexican Americans in Texas and Mexican Americans in Nevada and Colorado. Excuse me. um, Well, Nevada to a certain extent, but New Mexico and Colorado, those are Mexican Americans in in those places have been in the United States for generations. Been here longer (laughs) than my family have. Right, Right. exactly. Um, So, I mean, it's a it's a much different dynamic, and uh, and this study raises something else, a point that I've been making, not so much at the blog, but when I talk about it with other people, is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding among Democrats about the nature of Hispanics, and I would add now Asian Americans. Um, in 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 the people of color uh, category, which is that Democrats are focused on anybody who's not white as being uh, black or or similar to being black. When black Americans have a much different historical context, and solidarity has traditionally been a much bigger strategy for their political survival than it has been for other groups. And Galston and Kamark make the point that Hispanics aren't developing in that in that direction because they don't have that historical context. I don't know if they actually call out the historical context, but I can tell you that that's what the issue is. Instead, what they are saying is that Hispanic Americans are going to be the new Italian Americans. They're going to come into this country and be progressive to start off with, but then as they open businesses, as they buy property, as they hire people, they're going to become uh, more conservative. And, and maybe leave the Democratic Party, and, and, and especially if the Democratic Party is calling them Latinxes. <laughs> right, which you, which you mentioned today. And it, right. is, it is, you know, again, it depends what kind of Hispanic American you are. But it's the, the longer you've been in the country, I think it makes a difference. I mean, Arizona, Arizona, the reason they've elected Democrats lately has been because of many Hispanics that are voting Democrat, because a lot of the whiter retirees there are staunch Republicans. So right. it's a tricky thing. But it's very, con- again, I hate to use the word condescending or pedantic over and over, but it's it's troubling. And on the other hand, um, I like the analogy to the Italian-Americans. I guess it could go for Irish-Americans, too. Jewish-Americans, of which I am one, hard to say. There, there's, a, there's an unyielding loyalty to the Democrats among 75% of Jews, no matter what Democrats say about Israel or their policies. And yeah. uh, that probably isn't going to change anytime soon. But while we're on this topic, what I wanted to mention is, you know, can the Republicans capitalize on this? With 30 retirements, you have to think that they're going to take the House back, even though, you know, with with Devin Nunes leaving, with uh, there was a death, of course, up here in Minnesota of Jim Hagedorn, 
who I've met a few times that you probably are familiar with. The, oh, yeah, um, he just, just the, passed away. It's a shame. Yeah. On Friday from the first district, which yep. a great man, but but on the political side, a district that he lost a couple of years ago, and it, it could easily go back to the Democrats. And then you have, you know, you have these races, and I don't want to get too into it, but down in Charleston area with Nancy Mace and Donald Trump and Arrington, whose name was Kate, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Kate Arrington lost the race a couple of years ago after she won the primary against Sanford. Nancy Mace comes in, wins the race two years ago, would probably win again, hopefully will, but Donald Trump immediately endorses Arrington when she declares a primary challenge two weeks ago, saying Nancy Mace is a terrible politician. And without even knowing why, you know exactly why he called Nancy Mace a terrible politician. Not about who she is or her conservatism. It's about her brief response to... Stop the steal. Right, January yeah. 6th. January 6th. So it's all yeah. personal. But those are the kind of races you can lose. And if a few of those don't go our way, all of a sudden the House is really close. So, you know, if you want to lose a seat in the midterm elections, then go with Arrington. It seems like to me. Uh, but uh, Nancy Mace is a strong conservative. Well, I, I mean, we... we We've been through that cycle before, too, with the, with the Tea Party. The first Tea Party cycle in 2010, we did some great stuff, but we lost. We left some Senate seats on the table. Well, the that Senate, we right, right. Yeah. Delaware, Nevada, yeah. yeah. The Senate's a little different because you do run for the whole state. Um, yep. And I don't know if you want to get into it real quickly, but sure. you, have, you still have those states. Just Ohio is still Ohio, and uh, it's not getting any better. You have you have J.D. Vance, who's, who's fading in the polls, but who's out there with Steve Bannon, who – why he'd go on Steve Bannon's podcast is beyond me, who's bashing military generals and saying we're only going to fight Russia, but we are, because of Putin's against transgender rights or something. I mean, some of the most embarrassing comments. And Josh Mandel, who was a great candidate 10 years ago, who's, you know, and Jane Tinkin, who's making commercials about the size of the manhood of her her opponents and saying right. she's the Trump candidate. You know, nominate the wrong person. I don't need to tell you, Ohio voted for Barack Obama twice. This is not Wyoming or Alabama. Right. Um, and same with Arizona. Where well, they, Georgia. Oh. Georgia voted for Georgia voted for um, uh, Ossoff and, and Warnock in those runoff races. And Warnock's back up this year. Ossoff Georgia's, isn't. Georgia's yeah. a tricky one because you, you do have the option of a Herschel Walker or a Kelvin King, two African-Americans. You also have a state that I still think is more red than it's blue. Certainly it's purple. And we shouldn't have lost last time. And we lost because of Stop the Steal for the most part. And right. of course, in the governor's race, you have a whole other blank show with David Perdue trying to <laughs> prime. This is one of the worst primary challenges I've ever seen. David Perdue, who, you know, I went to his rallies and I hoped he won, but he's been totally taken over by the Stop the Steal wing and is trying to unseat Brian Kemp, who's a phenomenal governor and a great conservative and who was, for what it's worth, loyal to Donald Trump the whole time he was there. And it's, it's a shame what's going on there. But I think Kemp will get the nomination and. Then we'll see what happens with him against the uh, the maskless Stacey Abrams. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm actually pretty stoked about the turnout models this year from what I'm seeing in the enthusiasm gaps. Yeah, the enthusiasm is with us for yeah. rar rarity. A rarity, and and significantly, if you look at that Emerson poll that came out today, uh, and again, we're talking on Tuesday here. This will probably be in Thursday's podcast, but the is I feel like a 14 point gap in enthusiasm between Democrat and Republican voters in the midterms. And that's massive. And that and and that's apart from the R plus nine in the generic ballot, which is just a you know, a, that's that's not red wave. That's something out of, you know, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and Elevator Doors. <laughs> You're looking at a, a GOP plus nine on the generic ballot. Don't you have a don't you have the first primary 
coming up right there in in the Lone Star State on Tuesday, right here in Texas. And in fact, I'm 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 actually going to be in, uh, interviewing uh, the uh, Lady Godiva te- uh, a candidate here. Um, it should be on part of the same podcast here. And uh, she's um, she's running for the railroad commission, which is a, a big oh. deal here in Texas. It is, oh, it is. Yes, yeah. I, I, having worked with railroads in Texas, yes, I'm well aware of that. Yep. Um, but are you excited about Beto? I mean, are you excited? Oh about- yeah, I'm. I'm very excited that he's going to get the Democratic nomination, and he's going to suck a whole bunch of money away yes. from a whole bunch of other races and have no shot at winning here. And remember, um, Ed, he's not interested in taking away your guns this time. <laughs> No, no, not at all. Not at all. No more. I mean, this is, this is part of the reason why, you know, certainly as Republicans, we have to be concerned about candidate selection. We've been through this before in 2010 and to a lesser extent in 2012. Don't forget that the Todd Aiken thing was 2012, (laughs) right? Um, And um, so, yeah, but I mean, part of this is Democrats candidate. How does Beto run? for governor in Texas? How do Democrats not prepare somebody else other than a guy who has basically de-pantsed himself twice <laughs> in 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 uh, statewide races and, and is ready to do it a third time and take the Democratic Party down with him? Well, you tell me. I mean, the, the De- Texas, Texas Democrats haven't won a statewide election in many years. Now, obviously, there are, I'm sure, eight, nine million Democrats in Texas out of whatever the population is, right? There's got to be. Just like be. in California. Just like California has 12 million Republicans, you know, far more than any other state outside of maybe Texas. But no, he, he's a fundraiser and he's popular amongst the group. But no, I don't think he'll win. Um, I assume, by the way, Abbott will survive the primary challenge from Colonel West and the others. Um, oh, I, I think why. I think pretty solidly. You hear some griping about Abbott here in Texas. But I mean, the the polls show nobody's even coming close to him in the primary. That's he's he's I think Good. other is the second leading candidate. Well, that's, that's the problem with having too many people challenging the primary. But, yeah. you know, it's it's you mentioned Arizona, by the way, just to, and, and we're talking about governors. I mean, Doug Ducey, I believe, has won three statewide elections in Arizona. He's a conservative. He's not perfect like anyone else, probably, you know, but certainly as good a governor as Brian Kemp or anyone else could probably win the Senate race. But I don't think he's going to jump in because he's afraid of the stop the steal conspiracy wing who's mad that he didn't try to steal Arizona for Donald Trump. And so there's going to be a a race and the Republicans, you know, Mark Kelly has been a disaster running as a moderate and then voting 100% of the time with, you know, the Democrats, but if they, Arizona runs someone kooky, which they probably will knowing the Arizona GOP, I don't know that we're going to take that seat. I just don't. In fact, I'd say of the four or five we've talked about, that's probably the least likely for Republicans to pick up. They're more likely to pick up Georgia. New Hampshire, or even Nevada with Laxalt, who is a good candidate. Yeah, Laxalt. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think they got a good shot in Nevada. I think they've got a, a pretty decent shot in New Hampshire, regardless of who they run. Right, regardless. Because uh, Hass- right. Hassan is just, yeah. Um, Georgia will be interesting, and I think Arizona will be interesting as well. You know, we've got just a few minutes here, and I want to mm-hmm. get to Ukraine, because you've been writing about Ukraine, and of course, uh, we're just doing this about an hour after Joe Biden stopped speaking at his uh at his um press conference really just a a a statement because he didn't take questions walked away um this i think is yet another example of how incoherent and how reactive joe biden and his administration is i mean putin's been in ukraine for eight years 
How do you how do you not prepare for this eventuality rather than spend the previous 24 hours trying to parse out the meaning of invasion as a way to sort of avoid uh, slapping really tough sanctions on Russia over over what it did do yesterday, which was to uh, provide recognition for the independence of Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, I mean, I, can, I get the idea of of saying, well, we're, we're going to take a cautious path here to try to incentivize Putin to go no further and to do no more damage than that, knowing that there's not much we can do about it. But to, to, but to, to do that and then to go ahead and go out the other way and, and say, oh, no, it's an invasion and we're going to do all this. And I, I mean, these guys are there's no strategy involved here. It's all tactics, no strategy. Yeah, I. I'm reticent to criticize the Biden administration too much on this. Um, I, I like the you know politics end of the water's edge type idea. I don't like it when they did it to Trump or Bush. Um, but certainly, I don't think this would have happened with Donald Trump in office. And that's not necessarily just to praise the Trump administration. I just think that Putin knows Biden is weak. And I think the sanctions were late, and they should be more. There should be punishing sanctions that go to after critical industries. Um, and I think it's important to note that uh, this is a serious matter. And I think, yes. of course, there are people on the left who always will blame America first. And there are people on the right, and a very fast emerging neo-isolationist group who don't want to ever get involved in anything in the, in the war world again. You know, it's the... They've been around thing. a while. They've been around a while. The Romulans. Yeah, were, but it's, it's, these it's, are the Romulans. These are the Romulans. Right, but they've the... never been more powerful. You have Sorba right. Mari right in the New York. And you have Tulsi Gabbard speaking at CPAC. I mean, this is one of the... I, I almost fell out of my chair yesterday. Tulsi Gabbard, who's on Fox News all the time, mostly on the evening Tucker Carlson type shows, she's speaking at CPAC. She has a 6% conservative voting record. She's a very left-wing person, but she's an isolationist. Um, and I think she doesn't like the cancel culture type thing. So she's speaking at CPAC, but, you know, Rob Portman or Ben Sass would not be allowed to speak at CPAC, which is also kind of funny. I think CPAC's kind of gone downhill, but that's a whole different discussion. Well, yeah, um, it's a different discussion. We can have that discussion at right. time. But I Ukraine, actually don't mind Tulsi Gabbard being there. I would like to see, you know, I would like to see other other. They've also got there. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and the whole. Well, I don't know. How, I don't know how you avoid that. I mean, I just don't know how you avoid that. People elected those people to positions in Congress. Well, if you're I CPAC. Guess, would we criticize the left if Ilhan Omar and AOC? I guess we would, we would, but I guess it's understandable. So. Well, I mean, Ilhan Omar, AOC, they're appearing at, you know, they, they were. Oh, for they, sure. No, they I mean, spoke at the Democratic Convention. They go to South by Southwest. Uh, yeah, as, no, as they're as more influential. That, that is the difference. Yeah. They are more influential. Yeah. But this this crisis is, I'm not getting into the whole like World War Three idea, but it could escalate very quickly. Yeah. Um, and Putin doesn't just want these little, I mean, you talked about partition today, and I understand that, but. Yeah. He sees the weakness that invites aggression. Um, we are really witnessing, I know it sounds cliche, the end of the, the post-Cold War era that began 30 years ago. We're, we're witnessing a, a lack of respect for the sovereignty of nations. And for most of us, I don't know how old you are, Ed, but you're not 80. <laughs> um, so you've not seen anything like this because it really goes back to 1945, um, a powerful nation expanding its dominance like this and ending basically, you know, was it called Pax Americana? You know, and and basically, what I worry about is is copycat countries like China, who certainly aligned nominally with Russia, using the moment to take Taiwan, um, and that's going to not seem very minor when that happens. No, so, it's not. No, it's not. You need. I, I would argue that this has been going on for fifteen years. I mean, this has been going on yeah, since Georgia. Yeah. 
and, and and nobody took it seriously. I mean, Russia invaded Georgia. They did worse in Georgia in 2008 than they're doing right now. They're, what what they did in Georgia in 2008, they've just taken eight years to do in Ukraine right now. In in 2000, August of 2008, Russia invaded Georgia, split off South Ossetia and Abkhazia as you know supposedly independent states. But basically as a buffer to georgia because georgia was uh going to join nato and the you know this was in the middle of the election george bush um slapped sanctions on on putin over it when barack obama comes into office what does he do he lists some of the sanctions and he sends hillary clinton to um to meet with sergey lavrov with a with a reset button there has been a fundamental unseriousness about this and the, and, and i would say that Contrary to something that you said, I would say that Trump wasn't terribly serious about it either. But the difference was there were two differences. One was that Trump was unpredictable enough to where I think Putin had to think twice about what 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 uh, Trump would actually do. And I think that the assassination of um, Soleimani um, may have sent that signal. That I, I would also add one thing about Trump for all my criticisms of him, especially in foreign policy, is he had smarter people around him. He had Mike yeah. Pompeo. He had Nikki Haley. He had others. George Joe Biden does not have. I'm not saying he has the worst people. He could have the Bernie Sanders group around him. He doesn't, but he has, you know, the Barack got, Obama group around him. Yeah, he's got the Barack Obama group. He's got the he's got the Clinton group around him, and and they're clueless and they don't have any strategic thinking whatsoever. The other thing, though, is that we had low oil prices because Donald Trump was was incentivizing uh, oil and natural gas production here in the United States. And it drove the spot market or it drove the spot and the futures market prices down to a level where Putin wasn't making a whole lot of profit. And that's a petrostate. So when you have, if you want to contain a petrostate, what you do is you outproduce them and drive the prices low and, and force them to, to live on a lot less. You're hundred percent correct. Yeah. The energy situation is, is a major problem. Soaring energy prices, over $100 a barrel probably. And Ukraine, you mentioned Georgia. Ukraine is such a much bigger country, both physically and population-wise. I think that's maybe why it's getting more attention. Also, Ukraine is a major, major exporter of vital things like wheat and corn and grain right. and iron and steel. So this is a serious situation. Ukraine is not Montenegro or Georgia. Um, I don't, people don't always know these things, but Ukraine is a serious country, has corruption like any other, but to just act like it's, you know, unimportant what the, the minor incursion or the major incursion or the semi-major incursion or whatever that's going on, th th that's, that's foolhardy, naive and, and dangerous. Well, AJ, we're going to have to leave it at that. You can find out more by going to alphanews.org and following what AJ's writing on a on an ongoing basis. And he makes ongoing appearances here on the Ed Morrissey Show as well. And the next time I'm going to have you introduce the segment because you actually do a pretty good. All right. Well, thank you for joining the Ed Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> AJ, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. All right. It. Ed, thank you. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. And uh, stay tuned for more.